0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cosine. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Neurologic diseases, which can affect your brain, spinal cord, and nervous system, are complex and can affect people of all ages. On today's program, we'll learn more about two neurologic diseases, muscular dystrophy and multiple sclerosis, from a Mayo Clinic expert.
2: Also on the program, we'll learn about intestinal obstructions and why
3: untreated hearing loss has health consequences, especially for older adults. There's very good data showing that the simple fact of having hearing loss increases your risk of hospitalizations, increases your risk of mortality. I think the really interesting thing that is being studied now is, is this a modifiable risk factor?
1: That's this week's program, up next. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cosine, And I'm Tracy McCray. There are more than 600 types of neurologic diseases that can affect your nervous system. The nervous system includes the brain, spinal cord, and nerves, which control all the workings of the body. When something goes wrong with a part of your nervous system, you can have trouble moving, speaking, swallowing, or breathing. Or problems can develop with your memory, senses, or mood. In
2: addition, there are neuromuscular disorders that involve problems with the communication between the nervous system and the muscles that they control. Are you confused? Little, I certainly am. Um, yes. Yeah. Here to help us understand is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Jennifer Martinez Thompson. Welcome back to the
1: program, Dr. Martinez Thompson. It's nice to see you again.
4: Thanks for having me. And
2: you two went to medical we school together. Yes, we, we did. We did. We
1: had our um, bodies. where uh, that's anatomy bodies. We're right next to each other, so we would occasionally kind of back up into each other. And, that is true. What made you interested
2: in going into neurology?
4: So neurology is all about the localization. So based on what the patients are telling you and where the issues might be, trying to localize it to a part of the nervous system really helps to target the testing so you can be very precise in the type of evaluation uh, for them. So I always thought that was very interesting. Like super satisfying. You have an answer. Yep.
1: Or sometimes you don't have an answer. And sometimes you do not have an answer. (laughs) Well, yeah, let's talk about the difference.
2: Absolutely. The difference between a disease and a disorder. What's the difference?
4: <laughs> yeah, so essentially disorder is more of an umbrella term. So it's more non-specific. It, you may know a cause for a disorder. You may not. So it might be malfunctioning in, in the sense of nervous disorder, malfunctioning of components of the nervous system, and you don't know exactly why. Whereas a disease is more that you can tie it to a specific cause. There might be a specific thing on pathology or a specific molecular defect that you can tie the symptoms to, so you can narrow it down a little bit more. But to be honest with you, in medicine, we use those terms pretty interchangeably. So if you see disease or disorder, you can think of them almost synonymously. So what do you think about that 600 neurologic diseases? More? Oh, there's definitely more than <laughs> definitely more than 600. Definitely more. She see her
1: eyebrows going. Yeah, and she's like, that. Ah, oh, uh, right. got you.
4: So when it comes to
2: um, the diseases, there can be lots of different causes. If it's you know a cancer or some sort of genetic disease, something like that, how do you determine what condition you're dealing with or wh- which path to go down?
4: Yeah. So that really all comes down to the visit with the neurologist. So one of the most important things is the history and the examination. So it's going back to the basics and really depending on what the patients are telling you. So when was the onset of symptoms that they perhaps have symptoms before that imply something that's been more longstanding? Mm -hmm. So you might think more of a genetic thing or an inherited condition, whereas things that develop quickly, you think, could it be an inflammatory thing or associated with cancer? So really, the history can help guide you down the path for specific testing. And then the exam, there's specific patterns that you can see that can help you essentially determine how active a disease process might be and how rapidly it's changing. And that can help gear the evaluation a little bit more.
1: So we were kind of thinking, you know, muscular dystrophy is not one disease. It's a group of diseases. Tell us a little bit about the different types of muscular dystrophy and what sort of that pattern that you were talking about like what might bring somebody in with that.
4: Sure. So, muscular dystrophy, it's an umbrella term essentially for muscle diseases where there's a known genetic abnormality that affects proteins in muscle that help with the membrane of the muscle or the structure of the muscle. So, even thinking of muscle disease as a more broad term muscular dystrophy specifically in that area. So, functions of the muscle that help to maintain the structure of the muscle. Okay. So things with muscular dystrophy, there's more than 30 types. Oh, wow. Okay. And the problem is is now in the day and age of genetic testing where it's a lot easier to test for a broad spectrum of genes, what we're finding is the line that between muscular dystrophy and other types of muscle diseases is blurring
1: okay, so it's a making little it a job bit. harder. So it's
4: making it more complicated. Uh, usually with muscular dystrophies. There's symptoms that may start in childhood mm-hmm. or in the teenage year. So patients will talk about very gradual, progressive mm-hmm. symptoms of weakness or loss in muscle bulk, really not with any sensation changes. And when you evaluate them, the weakness may actually be out of proportion to what they think because the symptoms have been present they're for so it. long, they're used to it know. and they've adapted. So you can actually pick up on more weakness than maybe what they're noticing at the functional level because their body has adapted to it. Most patterns for the muscular dystrophies tend to involve the muscles that are near the shoulders and near the hips. And so things like standing up from a seated position, so rising out of a chair, getting in and out of a car, walking upstairs for little kids, maybe if they're playing on the floor. Standing up from that position mm-hmm. and really trying to use those hip girdle muscles to get them standing, they may have trouble with that. Or even things like running at earlier ages might be a tip off that there's something going on.
1: I think one of the muscular dystrophies that most people have heard about is like Duchenne's, which is typically thought of little kids, right?
4: Yeah. So so you're right. So Duchenne's muscular dystrophy is the most common type that affects boys in early childhood years. So typically ages two to six or so mm-hmm. might be when their symptoms start. Thinking beyond that, it gets more complicated, okay. again, with the muscular dystrophy. So, so there's different patterns that can come on in late teenage or early adulthood years. So some of the ones that you might consider are the limb girdle muscular dystrophy. So there's different genetic abnormalities in that, multiple genes that have been implicated in that. And with those adults, the pattern of weakness a little bit different than what you might see in the kids They may have where it starts in the shoulders rather than the hips. They may have their scapula, that bone that helps to support the shoulder. It may wing a little bit when they're trying to raise their arms above their head or do functions Mm -hmm. with the arm. They may develop things like contractures where their knees, the tendons, the ligaments that help to connect the joints become very stiff and contracted, so they have decreased range of motion of certain joints. And so you can look for those subtle clues on the exam to help point to a direction where you might do testing.
2: There's so many different forms of muscular dystrophy. How do you treat them?
4: Yeah, so it's symptomatic management, unfortunately. I mean, there are trials that are ongoing, looking at different type of treatments to see if it can slow progression of disease. Really, the only thing with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy that they find that might be helpful at slowing down the progression of weakness or keeping kids walking Mm -hmm. for a longer period of time is the use of steroids.
0: Oh, okay. So using
4: steroids yeah. early on, what they find is that there's a modest benefit in improving the strength in the and muscle. Do
1: you think that just kind of, of them quiets w- down maybe yeah. so the is, an immune response? Or? So
4: there is inflammation okay. that's associated mm-hmm. with muscular dystrophy. It's thought to be a reaction to the muscle breakdown. So it's thought that by treating some of that inflammation, that might be what slows things down, but it's it's not a long-term benefit. So at a certain point, the prednisone or other steroid that you might use is not as beneficial.
1: So kind of in general, these sound like these are diseases of younger people. So my, you know, our, our friends in their 50s or 60s who are saying, gosh, it's getting, I got out of that chair, I feel kind of stiff. That's probably not muscular dystrophy, right? Correct. So okay. general
4: rule of thumb, it's going to be longer. There are some rare forms where it can present in yeah. the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. but usually when you ask, there clues in the history that they maybe had symptoms earlier on, so even teenage years in their early 20s.
2: And as we know more about genetics, is there anything that is changing in the management of people's
4: cases of muscular dystrophy or that genetics is teaching us? So I think the genetics at this point is more of understanding the mechanism for why the muscle disease is happening in these families to begin with. So a lot of the work that's being done is to try to improve the detection of Mm -hmm. these different... So every year you're discovering more and more genetic abnormalities and tying them to different muscle diseases that previously couldn't be associated with a specific genetic abnormality. I think once that phase is done, really a goal is going to be trying to target treatments based on the genetic abnormalities, Mm -hmm. but we're not there at this point.
2: We've been talking with Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. Jennifer Martinez-Thompson about neurologic diseases, We've covered muscular dystrophy, and now we're going to turn our attention to multiple sclerosis. So let's do that myth or matter of fact.
1: If my MS isn't
4: causing symptoms, I don't need treatment. Is that a myth or a fact? So that's a myth, but looking at the question carefully, it can be a complicated situation in MS because there is a spectrum of how people present with MS from the range where they may have clinical symptoms or where they have a brain scan for another reason and lesions that look like MS lesions are discovered incidentally. And then the question becomes in those patients, do you treat them or not? Mm -hmm. So in patients that have had symptoms in the past, likely they're going to need to be on some type of treatment to try to decrease uh, risk of MS attacks in the future.
2: So how are MS and MD muscular dystrophy, how are they different from each other?
4: It's completely different ends of the spectrum. So what we were talking about with muscular dystrophies more targeting the muscle, muscle level, uh-huh. right? So an issue with the muscle itself and the proteins of the muscle. MS is a central nervous system disorder, by that meaning that it affects the brain and the spinal cord. And so MS, while we don't understand the cause for it, it is thought to be an autoimmune condition. Mm-hmm where the body Mm -hmm. essentially attacks the fatty covering that acts as insulation from the nerves as they're traveling through the brain and into the spinal cord. So that's called the myelin. So it's thought to be a demyelinating, loss of myelin Mm -hmm. type of syndrome. So what does the name tell us, multiple
1: sclerosis?
4: So what multiple means, it involves multiple parts of the Mm -hmm. central nervous system. So when you, back in the day when it was initially described and people in autopsy looking at brain, mm-hmm. under the microscope, they noticed that there were lesions in different portions of the brain and in the spinal cord. Sclerosis meaning that they look like plaques. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a scar that was left behind. And so that's how the name was born. Yeah. And if
2: MS is an autoimmune disease, MD is not, though? It's-
4: that is not. So that is based on genetics, okay. whereas MS is completely different. There are there any genetics involved in the MS? So I think there are some studies looking at the possibility Mm -hmm. of genetics in MS. What we know at this point that it does not really travel in families. Mm -hmm. So there's not clear family preponderance. But if there's a family history of autoimmune disease, so people with thyroid disease Mm -hmm. or other types of Mm -hmm. autoimmune disease, that there may be an increased risk for MS. Tell us a little bit about how you diagnose MS. So MS, again similar to muscular dystrophy, depends a lot on the history and clinical examination. Mm -hmm. So it's a clinical diagnosis. And so people will typically present with symptoms that are more rapidly changing than, for example, a muscular dystrophy. So over days or weeks, they'll develop numbness or tingling of the face, arm, and legs. Uh, They can have issues where they have painful vision loss Mm -hmm. involving an eye. They can have bowel or bladder dysfunction with that or they can have weakness involving a side of the body or both legs, Mm -hmm. depending what level of the nervous system is involved. So when you hear that type of story and the symptoms evolving over days to weeks, that's one of the things that you consider. So you look for specific patterns on the exam that will point you to that, and really what the testing that you do to diagnose is to confirm what your suspicion is. So for diagnosis, it will include MRI, so MRI looking at the brain and at the spinal cord. And really what you're trying to do is to look for lesions that look characteristic of MS within the areas where there's that myelin in the brain and spinal cord. And because so we when call you that say, the white matter. When
1: you say central nervous system, that's not just the brain. That's also the spinal exactly. cord. Exactly. So, so it also
4: includes the spinal cord. So mm-hmm. you'd be looking at both of those components. Uh, then there's usually a spinal tap that's involved looking for signs where there might be uh, inflammation or something that tells mm-hmm. you that the immune system is active at that time. So specific things that you'd look at in the spinal tap. And then you can actually test how the nerves uh, conduct electricity through responses, either through the visual pathways into the brain or from the pathways in the arm and the leg and measure the electricity how it's conducted up those nerves through the spinal cord up to the brain and look for slowing there that tells you that myelin that insulation is mm. not quite wrapped around the nerves the way that it should be so those are those tests are called evoked potentials and so looking at all that t- testing together can help you confirm the diagnosis and of course you'd want to rule out other alternative infections or other inflammatory type conditions that could look similar to that so Can you cure MS or do you manage the disease? So there's not a cure, Mm -hmm. but you manage the disease. And unlike muscular dystrophy and MS, there are a lot of treatments available. Mm -hmm. And that could be a whole other topic on its own because there are so many different disease-modifying therapies Mm -hmm. out there to help control the disease. And it really depends on how aggressive the disease is for Mm -hmm. a patient, so how many MS attacks there are how severe each of those attacks are. When they do the the brain and the spinal cord imaging, does it look like there's a lot of active lesions? So all of those factors have to be weighed in and deciding what the type, uh, uh, right type of treatment would be. So there are treatments that you can give actively when someone's in an attack to try to reduce the time that they're in that attack, like steroids or things where you might wash the blood, like Mm -hmm. a plasma exchange. And then for more long-term control of the disease, uh, there's injectable therapies, oral tablets, there's infusions, there's a lot of different treatments available that you would give with really the main goal of trying to reduce the risk of relapses in the future, so another MS attack, and trying to reduce the number of lesions that you'd see on the scans, because that's the longer-term goal. You don't want those lesions to continue building because you don't want it to become more of a progressive disease in the future. So if a young person were diagnosed with MS, it sounds like there's a lot of reason to be
1: hopeful that they could do really well.
4: Absolutely. And in many cases of MS, the attacks tend to be mild. So there's a broad spectrum in what you see. Most cases, people do very well with long-term management of of the disease. There's only the rare cases where they may have more severe presentation.
2: Mm -hmm. We were talking about uh, muscular dystrophy having so many different types, you know, 30-plus different types. How many types of MS are there?
4: That's a good question, and it depends, I guess, how you define MS. But thinking of MS, there's types in the way that people present, but it's really all under the same disease. So the most common type is what we call relapsing remitting. So that's that classic type where people develop symptoms. Mm -hmm. After some weeks, they stabilize. Things remit, improve. And then they may have an attack in the future. So that's the classic form. There are others where from the start or later on in the disease it sort of develops more progressively. So mm-hmm. month by month they develop some Maybe progressive attacks are a bit worse. It, 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 instead okay. of instead of a quick attack and then improvement, it's just kind of gradual worsening over time. For those, there are some treatments available, but there's not as many as for the relapsing remitting form. But also not a cure. But it's also not a cure.
2: There's lots of research, though, that's being done. Is that being done to find a cure or to help manage?
4: Both. Mm -hmm. So it's not only looking forward. Are there ways that you can modify the disease itself, looking for cure? But also are there ways to better manage the the symptoms and the disease activity? That's That's definitely a very active field.
2: Dr. Jennifer Martinez-Thompson has been with us discussing neurologic diseases and neuromuscular disorders, including muscular dystrophy and multiple sclerosis. Thanks for joining us again, Dr. Martinez-Thompson. Thanks for having me. And now, with the latest health and medical news, here's Vivian Williams.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Snack time can be a tricky time when you try to satisfy the urge to eat while avoiding a calorie overload. Catherine Zaratsky, a Mayo Clinic dietitian, says there are a few simple ways to trick your body into feeling fuller quicker and for a longer period of time without consuming extra calories. Now, For many people, the afternoon lull is the toughest time to keep yourself from eating. This is when lunch feels like forever ago and dinner is still hours away. Zaratsky says that one of the key things is to ask, am I hungry or am I doing it out of boredom or some other reason? She says if it really is hunger, some snacks are better than others and that your stomach seems to be responsive to volume and weight. That means some of the best snacks are the ones that physically fill your stomach but have minimal calories. Fruits and veggies are 80-90% to water. They're bulky because they're fibrous, and so they're heavy and they take up space. So in a way, they trick your brain into thinking you've eaten more than you have. In many cases, fruits and veggies can make your body feel full more quickly than eating a higher volume of other foods. You can also trick your brain into making that feeling last longer by mixing in some protein and fat that take longer to digest think peanut butter on fruit or hummus or guacamole on veggies and so if you fill up with fruits and veggies but then have a little bit of protein and fat your food will digest more slowly maintaining that feeling of satiety or fullness it allows you to get the snack you need without the calories you don't and in other news here's a different kind of story it's about your voice and why we sound the way we do everyone's voice is unique Dr. David Lott, a Mayo Clinic otolaryngologist and head and neck surgeon, says the way your voice sounds has to do with a complex series of events. He compares the process to what happens when you strum a guitar. So your diaphragm and lungs push air up to the vocal cords, which vibrate. The waves vibrate in your pharynx, the upper part of your throat, the back of your nose, and in the sinuses of your head. It's similar to what happens when you play the guitar. The guitar strings are what your vocal Chords are they vibrate and make a buzz sound the vibrations resonate in the body of the guitar Just like they do in your head how the tones sound depend on the shape and sound of the instrument And because everybody's throat nose and head are different. We all have our own signature sounds for the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams Welcome back
1: to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Cozine and I'm Tracy McRae Intestinal obstruction is a blockage that keeps food or liquid from passing through your small or large intestine. While causes of intestinal obstruction may include Crohn's disease, diverticulitis, hernias, and colon cancer, the most common cause is fibrous bands of tissue, known as adhesions, that form in the abdomen after surgery. Without treatment, the blocked
2: parts of the intestine can die, leading to serious problems. But with prompt medical care, intestinal obstruction can often be successfully treated. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic trauma and critical care specialist, Dr. Erica Loomis. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Loomis. It's good to see you again.
5: Thanks so much. Glad to be here.
2: Adhesions do not sound good when they're inside your body.
5: (laughs) Not really, but it's a body's natural reaction. Just like if you got a cut on your arm or somewhere else, we form a scar, and that's how you form scar on the inside of your abdomen. It's adhesions.
2: What kind of surgery causes this?
5: Really, any surgery. So anytime you have an operation, you're at risk of getting this type of scar tissue. Uh, If you, or we used to think maybe pelvic surgeries led more perhaps to um, adhesions, but... Really any type of operation can put you at risk for adhesions and some people are born with them. They're called congenital adhesions. They've never had an operation but have a fibrous band. So kids, just as at high risk for adhesions? Adults, for sure, more at risk um, than children. Children, if they present with obstruction, usually have different causes. An adult who's had an operation, clearly more at risk than somebody who's never had an operation. But other things can cause adhesions, as you mentioned in the opening, Crohn's disease. They may not have had surgery, but they have intra-abdominal inflammation, and your body responds to that by making scar tissue, same as diverticulitis or some of these other causes. So they've never had an operation, but they still get the scar tissue.
2: You. so what are the symptoms how do you know if this is you
5: you'll know if you have an obstruction right it's uh people usually come to the emergency department so you're usually nauseous you're vomiting unable to make keep anything down it's beyond your usual stomach flu or something like this most people then can't have a bowel movement or they can't pass gas they start to get very bloated and they usually have abdominal pain there are symptoms that are significant most people come to the er like i say and is it twisted
2: or folded or what?
5: It can be. So obstruction can be simple where it just, you know, a piece of the bowel is kind of crimped off. It could be a complete obstruction, so the bowel is completely closed or partial, so it's just narrowed. Or it could be that the bowel has twisted on itself or it's stuck, as you mentioned, I think, in the open as well, like in a hernia. So it comes out and it gets stuck in this hernia mm. um, and the things can't pass through. How do you diagnose all those different kinds of obstructions? So a lot is based on symptoms, right? So we kind of take what the patient presents with overall um, and gives us their history. We examine them. If you have a hernia, we usually can identify that on small on physical exam. And then it's a lot of imaging. So usually it's a CT scan. Sometimes we can tell a lot from a plain abdominal X-ray, but usually a CT scan is going to tell us exactly what the cause is.
2: So you said it could be that the... um, the bowel is
5: just smaller or the colon is just smaller, so that's the suit of partial? Yep, so you can have partial obstruction where, you know, it could be just smaller. Sometimes you can just have times where the intestines just aren't moving well. Like people after surgery often, their GI tract's not moving all that well. They've had general anesthesia or maybe they've had an operation on their abdomen and things aren't actually obstructed. They're just slowed way down. So we treat that differently. That's mainly supportive measures. Sometimes people come in with a partial obstruction, so things are just smaller. Sometimes those people get better in the upfront, but then they need surgery down the road because that small area keeps causing them problems. I think the other thing for people to know is we treat small bowel obstruction different than large bowel. So small bowel we look at differently than colon or large bowel obstruction. We treat a lot of small bowel obstruction conservatively because most people will get better without surgery, like upwards of 80% won't need an operation. And the surgeries don't often, except in certain circumstances, provide them benefit down the road. It might fix right now, but you're going to get another obstruction down the road. Can you give us a quick rundown of what a conservative treatment might look like? Yeah. So like I say, you'd come perhaps through the emergency department or maybe be referred to the hospital by um, your primary care provider and you're admitted to the hospital, you usually have a 2 tube placed in your nose it's by far the worst part of the management if you ask I think any patient Um, once we've made the diagnosis after we've gotten the imaging and everything else and um, we're confident on the diagnosis we decide conservative management and so we put a tube in your nose once the tube is in it's not as bad it's taking all the contents out from your stomach so most people feel better because the nausea the vomiting all of that will stop but you do have this tube in your nose we don't let you eat or drink anything until things get better and we watch you. We watch your exam. We watch your labs. And we give you IV fluids to support you. What we do here, if you have a small bowel obstruction that's not um, needing surgery in the immediate, is we actually give you a dose of contrast into that tube that we put in your nose. And we get an x-ray in about eight hours. And we look to see how far that contrast is making it. If it makes it into your colon within that eight-hour window, we have a fair amount of confidence that your obstruction is going to resolve without surgery. We take the tube out of your nose and we feed you. A good majority of the patients do fine, they eat, and they go home. A select minority don't do well with that and they actually go on to have surgery so is the obstruction just kind of resolving itself is that what's happening sometimes yeah sometimes it's the bowel just has gotten into a position that has kinked it off sometimes you've eaten something that's actually plugged you you know plugged up your plumbing if you will too much fibrous uh debris or something like this um and simply just letting the the pressure off if you will by letting your bowel rest getting all that fluid out allows the bowel to relax and then gets things moving again
1: What are some of the
5: complications if
1: an obstruction isn't treated appropriately?
5: Yeah, so one is, you know, simple things can happen. If you're nauseous, vomiting, and not able to take anything in, you're going to get dehydrated. And that's probably the number one complication if somebody chose not to come to the hospital. The other big complication that none of us want to miss is uh, compromise to your intestines, meaning they lose their blood supply. So some of these obstructions are not your simple, straightforward, we can just treat you without surgery. Some come in and... And if the symptoms are um, significant or you have certain findings we see on the physical exam or on your imaging, we give you surgery up front because there is a risk that the intestines can lose their blood supply if they've twisted, if they're stuck in a hernia, something like this.
2: I can't imagine that no one would go in because the pain
1: is so bad. It's usually pretty
5: intense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Usually the pain is what brings most people in. So
1: it's kinda interesting to think about that surgery can cause this and then you'd use a surgery to, to f- fix it. Yeah, That's- and
5: we used to you know, the thought always used to be the sun should never rise or set on a small bowel obstruction. We should always be operating. But we found a lot of these people can get better without surgery and the surgery causes more scar tissue down mm-hmm. the line. So you can it doesn't ultimately help in the future. Mm-hmm.
2: We've been talking about treatment for intestinal obstruction with Mayo Clinic Trauma and critical care specialist Dr. Erica Loomis. Very interesting. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Loomis. Thanks again.
1: According to the National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders, a division of the National Institutes of Health, 36 million Americans have a hearing loss, and it's a growing problem for our pop as our population ages. Approximately one-third of Americans between ages 65 and 74 have hearing loss, And that number increases to half of all adults over 75. The good news is that hearing aids
2: can help. The bad news? Only 20% of people who could benefit from treatment actually seek help. This lack of treatment often affects the social, physical, and cognitive well-being of older adults. Here to discuss the consequences of untreated hearing loss is the chair of otorhinolaryngology, did I job. get it?
3: Well done, uh, yes.
2: <laughs> Dr. Colin Driscoll, welcome back to the program, Dr. Driscoll. It's nice to see you again. Thank you. I think Good the, for being here. the last time you were here, it took me quite a while to get that word, but <laughs> I got it. Uh, untreated hearing loss, um, I, to me, it seems like the worst part about it is that everybody argues that huh? they can't hear each other.
3: <laughs> is, is it, there has to be more than that. Well, there's probably a little bit more to that. Probably. But, uh, you know, we used to just think hearing loss was a just a part of aging and you just deal with it and it's and it's not a big deal but as um as we were starting to learn there are actually really significant consequences to not hearing and you know as we age as a population more and more people are falling into that category of having meaningful levels of hearing loss which impairs their ability to engage in all the daily life activities that they want to
1: so does everybody lose hearing loss or have hearing loss as they age or can you comment on that
3: um, you know, there are different statistics out there, but over half of people in their 70s have meaningful amounts of hearing loss, maybe up to 80% of people in their 80s. We all lose some degree of hearing loss, but what you need out of your ears does vary person to person. Does
2: age-related hearing loss typically start at a certain age, or is it different for everyone?
3: It definitely differs. Uh, so I think some people are more genetically predisposed to develop hearing loss, and then, of course you know, we do things that uh, accelerate our hearing loss, like not wear ear protection.
1: Yeah, I just be really curious. Do you think that with all the earbuds and listening things, that that'll be a bigger problem for my generation?
3: Yeah, I think there's uh, good evidence to, to say that. On the other hand, also people are really aware uh, of the importance of wearing hearing protection and protecting your ears, um, you know, if you're around noisy equipment, firearms, uh, even vacuum cleaners and things, that blenders that you that, might think aren't all that loud, but, you know, every one of those exposures might knock off a few more hair cells, and ultimately that all adds up.
2: What are signs and symptoms? I mean, if, if someone that lives in your house is struggling with hearing, the only way that you can know that is if they say, I'm having trouble with hearing.
3: Yeah, a lot of people with the hearing loss don't aren't the first to recognize sure. it, right? And because it's, it happens so gradually. Right. It's it's you know, your friends and family who notice that they've been saying something and you didn't respond or you misunderstood what they said. And I think that you know, those are relatively minor things, but as the hearing loss progresses um it, it affects their day-to-day lives. So if you have a hard time hearing, you might start to withdraw from social activities. You know that going out to dinner, it's just going to be problematic, mm-hmm. and it's a struggle, and it's frustrating, and so you stop doing those things. And that's where the the bad spiral begins.
1: So what are some of those additional consequences beyond the social or included in the social?
3: Yeah. You know, we used to think of hearing loss as just, again, being this separate thing from our overall health, but there are significant health related consequences to hearing loss. And there's lots of different ways to look at it, but one of the ways is just to expand on what we were talking about the social uh, withdrawal. So as you socially withdraw, um, you spend more time at home, maybe you have increased risk of depression. Maybe your physical activity isn't as good, your balance is also getting worse, your overall health condition is getting worse, and um, your eating habits and sleeping, drinking, all those things um, start to get worse, and all those have obvious significant uh, physical consequences. Falls in the elderly is, is an enormous problem. Uh, We all lose balance function over time. We're all at higher risk of falling later on. You think, well, hearing is hearing. But hearing actually helps us stay balanced. But also that, again, that social isolation withdrawal, you don't get out as much, you don't move as much, you gradually, your balance deteriorates even further, and you fall. And so there's very good data showing that just the simple fact of having hearing loss increases your risk of hospitalizations, increases your risk of mortality and that's untreated. And, and the really, I think the really interesting thing that is being studied now is: is this a modifiable risk factor? Well, diagnosing it's not hard. Yeah. You get a hearing test,
4: yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, and and that'll show the degree of hearing loss. And then I think the key is if you treat it with hearing aids or cochlear implants, whatever's most appropriate uh, for the degree of hearing loss, or surgery. There's repair, you know, types of hearing loss we can fix with surgery. You know, can you avoid some of these other consequences?
1: I think it's really interesting to think about the consequences and using that as a little bit of leverage to kind of get somebody in the door to have the hearing test and then to consider hearing aids. How has that technology changed and improved over the years that people might be a little bit more sold on it?
3: Yeah, it's definitely leverage. I think in in terms of, boy, this is going to not only help me hear in my day-to-day life, but makes me healthier long-term. Hearing aids, you know, they're like every technology. They keep getting better. Uh, We're much more accustomed to wearing things on our ears all the time. And so these technologies are just getting better integrated. And circuitry and all that kind of stuff does get better. So the performance is truly better.
2: Yeah, it seems so many people need eyeglasses. They'll say, okay, I'll get eyeglasses. They need a hearing aid, and they can't relate them. And was it because back 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, hearing aids were so ineffective and so bothersome that, it wasn't a fair comparison to make between glasses and hearing aids?
3: It's still not a fair comparison. So the one way to look at it is with hearing, um, with the uh, glasses, the sensory part of the eye, the back part of the eye, where the nerve is, that's okay. And it's, and it's more of a lens problem. And that's a easily fixed structural thing. Whereas hearing aids um, have to still work with the whole inner ear. And it's the inner ear sensory part that's often deteriorating in people. And the hearing aid can amplify sound, it can do a lot of interesting sound processing things, but it can't fix that internal damage. Um, so that, it, they work differently. The other thing is, there's, you know, a relationship between um, cognition and uh, dementia and mm-hmm. hearing loss. And that's received a lot of attention um, for obvious reasons. But, again, is hearing loss a modifiable risk factor? And there's multiple ways that hearing loss can be related to cognition. So if you struggle to hear, where is that extra brain power coming from? Mm-hmm. So you're borrowing from somewhere else, some other aspects of your brain, just to be able to hear the words and understand the sentences and, 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 and learn so that there's an extra cognitive load. We also know that if you lose hearing, there's structural changes that happen in our brains. I like to think of my brain as pretty static, yeah. mm-hmm. but it's changing. So if you don't have auditory inputs that are the same, there are physical structural changes that occur. And again, these could be then related to um, cognition. And then uh, we talked about the uh, social isolation, withdrawal, and reduced social interaction is another uh, potential pathway of connection. and know I think there's unanswered questions in this space and uh, I'm truly really not saying that everybody with hearing loss you treat is is going to make all the medical things better but it, there, I think there is a real relationship and that it is truly a modifiable uh, risk factor mm-hmm. for a lot of things.
1: <laughs> what are some examples of the non-hearing aid solutions potential surgical options for hearing loss?
3: Yeah so there's um, hearing loss problems that might be due to an eardrum you know a hole in the eardrum or there's those three little bones of hearing the incus malleus and stapes. Um, You know, so there can be Mm -hmm. problems with those that we can fix, Um, fluid in the ear, uh, tumors or things that are blocking the ear canal. So there are a number of things we can fix there surgically. And then there's several different types of implantable uh, devices that either bypass bad parts of the ear. Say you're born without an ear canal. Well, we can send a signal through the bone to the inner ear and stimulate it. Or uh, cochlear implants for people who are, are basically outgrowing hearing aids. So they've, you've used hearing aids, you no longer gain uh, enough benefit, uh, maybe a cochlear implant candidate.
2: The uh, consequences are many, and I'm surprised by a few of them. So thank you for sharing them with us today.
3: Absolutely, my pleasure.
2: We've been talking about the importance of treating hearing loss with the chair of otorhinolaryngology. Two times in a row, Dr. <laughs> Colin Driscoll. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Driscoll. Thank you. And that's our program for the week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. From Mayo Clinic
0: Radio and Dr. Elizabeth Cozine, I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.